So anyway, I'll read the text that I'm going to be speaking mostly from this morning, and then I'll pray and we'll get through looking at the life of Daniel. Ironically, though, the text that I'm going to be speaking from is not from the book of Daniel. It's just a text that I think that the life of Daniel emulates very well. So I'll read from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. And Peter writes, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Let's pray. Jesus, we just pray that you be with us this morning as we look at this passage. We thank you for your word that gives us your heart and mind with such clarity. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you be in our hearts and help us to receive it in the way that you want us to receive it, that you'd help us to apply it in the way that brings you glory, that proves our faith. Lord, I pray that you protect the ears of the people here from folly that might slip from my lips, and you'd help the things that you find beneficial in this message to stick, ever, ever increasing our ability to show your image in our community. Let that be the effect of this. We pray for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to be doing this quite a bit today. So um, that is, if you weren't looking. I, and I noticed when I was thinking about this other day, it's interesting that I came to Pekin um, at the age of 41 because um, I didn't have these when I came out here. So I, re- I realize that as long as God allows me to be here, you guys are going to get to watch me get old. And it all begins with these. Yes, I do. Yeah. I believe those scriptures say that the hair is the, the woman's glory, but, um, but at least I have mine. I think it says the beard is the man's glory, and Jeremy is helping me with that. So thank you, Mark, for your contribution. <laughs> so, all right. I don't know if I'm, if I'm getting old or you're making me old. What is it? No, I'm just kidding, Terry. I love you guys. All right, so I'm preaching from First um, Peter chapter 2, which actually there's a very similar passage in Romans 13. So if you get a chance, you can read through 13 also. Paul says things that are very similar. Actually, there's a, there's a, um, a tradition in church history that says that when Paul became an apostle, since he wasn't someone who knew the pre-crucified Jesus, right, that the early church at first had a hard time with Paul. You know, what in the world has this guy an apostle? Well, he proved himself over and over as an apostle. And the apostles, the, the disciples, um, authenticated Paul's um, apostolic standing. But one thing that's interesting, especially if you read the letters of First Peter, First and Second Peter, is there's, there's a tradition that says that was Paul's writing these letters to all these different cities, that later in Peter's life, some people say that he may have been traveling to all those cities, putting his stamp of approval on saying, this is God's word. Paul has given you God's word. Heed it. 
You know, and you could see uh, uh, elements of that in Peter's writing in these later letters that, that he was indeed verifying the authenticity of the, of the thoughts that um, Paul was receiving from the Holy Spirit. So anyway, that was a side point. But anyway, we'll, we'll get to Daniel a little bit later. But first, let's deal with this text here. What does it mean to be subject to someone? Peter says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. A simple definition, if you don't mind this one, I would say is just willingly giving control to another. That's being subject to someone. This is, a, this is an active phrase here. It's not saying find yourself in subjection to someone. It's be subject to, to the governing authorities, giving yourself over to them, giving them control in a sense. In the Christian sense, we give control to the governing authorities because we trust God who told us to. We are ultimately submitting to God. Now think about this. Because we are, citizens, are not citizens of this world, because we are not citizens of this world, that's what the scriptures say, in Christ we're not citizens of this world. Okay? I have no obligation to the authorities of this world. Then why in the world is Peter saying be subject to the governing authorities? Well, a simple way of looking at it is since my authority, who is the ultimate authority, commands me to posture myself before the governing authorities with honor, respect, and submission, then I am obligated more than all others to the governing authorities. Now, that's that kind of a wordy sentence there. but I want to make sure you're following me on that. I am not subject to the governing authorities. I have no obligation to the governing authorities because I'm not a citizen of this world citizen of heaven in Christ. And therefore, I could, have, I could maintain my rights, my freedom in Christ, as Paul describes in Galatians, and say, I have no obligation to you. My obligation is to Christ and Christ alone. But the interesting thing is, my highest obligation is to him. And when he tells me to be subject to the governing authorities, now I'm obligated more than all others to be subject to the governing authorities. Does that make sense? It's kind of like a circular thing there. Let me give you an illustration from the Bible. And and I'll I'll touch on this illustration a couple times in this. Jesus finds himself um, uh, before Pontius Pilate. You guys know the story. It's the big Easter story, right? And he starts uh, giving giving Jesus this, this harassment. So you're a king. Some king you are. See, you standing there in my shackles. You may be subject to my decisions. So you say you're a king. He says, my kingdom's not of this world. If it was, my followers would rise up and fight for me. And then Pilate says, do you not realize that I have the authority to set you free or have you crucified? Do you have any idea who you're talking to? I'm the governor here. I'm Pontius Pilate. My authority holds your destiny, Jesus. Do you not realize I have this kind of authority? You remember what Jesus says? Bold thing to say is he's shackled before this, before this authority. You'd have no authority over me unless my Father in heaven gave it to you. My ultimate authority is here. And because my ultimate authority told me to be subject to you, that is why I'm subject to you. But not because I have any obligation to be subject to you, but I have the highest obligation to be subject to him. Does that make, does that, is that making a little bit more sense how that works? 
And so we have no obligation to be subject to the governing authorities, except that our highest authority told us to be subject to the governing authorities. Therefore, we have the highest obligation more than anyone else to be subject to the governing authorities. All right, how's that for a tongue twister? So before I get too far in this, let me talk about it like this. Submission is not. There's a few things here I want to unfold. What, this, what, what submission is not? Submitting to the governing authorities or be subject to the governing authorities, however you want to use the verbiage there. First of all, submission is not agreeing with the authority. Can we, can we agree that authority is good even if authority figures are bad? And that's a hard for one for us because we live in a very unique time and a very unique structure in the history of mankind. This, this idea where we have such an influence on our governing authorities. It's not usually like that in history or in, the, in most of the world. But when you read the book of Judges, there's a couple phrases that jump out over and over. One of them is, there was no king in the land. During that time period, after Joshua and before King Saul and then King David. During that time period, there was just this, this kind of anarchy type thing. You read the later part of Judges, and there's some horrific stories. I mean, really horrific. Some of the ugliest stories that you can read as far as what happens in a society that has no government. There is no king in the land. The other phrase that's used in the book of Judges quite a bit is everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There's a phrase that a professor told me that's really stuck with me. And I need to think about it. You need to think about it. <laughs> Now, in an election year, probably more than any others, <laughs> bad government is better than no government. Okay? So understand that being subject to a governing authority, and, and, and it sounds a lot, I'm going to talk about in the, in the big realm, the national realm, quite a bit, but understand that I'm talking about the authority structure in general. We have a lot of authority structures. We have parental authority structures. We have... Uh, we have uh, work authority structures. We have church authority structures. We have community authority structures. You know, so I'm talking about all of those. I believe God instituted that authority structure because bad government is better than no government, and we should praise God for that. But being subject to the authorities around us does not mean I necessarily have to agree with the authorities around us. It's okay for me to so say, I think that's bad. I'll talk more about that in a minute, but let me just, just let that principle stick on its own for a second. Secondly, submission is not turning your brain off. This may be my last illustration of this kind, because I've been told that pastors should not use their children's illustrations too often, but um, with my son edging 11, I figure I get one more chance. <laughs> but this actually stuck with me last yesterday. We're, we're, we're sitting on the steps, and we're having one of those parent moments where... where um, you know, one of those parent moments. <laughs> and and, uh, and I'm talking with them. I say, hey, buddy, do you, do you know the difference between knowledge and wisdom? I mean, there's a verse in the prophets. I, I can't remember which prophet it is that says that in those days, talking about the last days, um, it says in those days men will increase rapidly with knowledge, but they'll be without understanding. Is that, it, that sounds like our days. I don't want to be all doomsday prophetic or whatnot, but in the history of mankind, I don't know of an age where knowledge is increasing much faster than it is now and without understanding, without wisdom. And so I'm, I'm asking Samuel, you know the difference between knowledge and understanding? He's like, I, he, he, he said, I don't, I don't know. I said, you, 
you know, because here's the, here's the issue with him. Right, right now, I think that he has issues with mommy and daddy because he thinks that he, that he knows more than mommy and daddy. And yeah, from the responses, it sounds like a lot of you have been there. But here's where it gets really, here's, here's where it gets really tricky. He does. <laughs> and that's where it's hard. I mean, he starts talking about atomic structures and... And I'm like, I, uh, you know what the, 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 the fifth dimension does, Daddy? I have no idea, buddy. Just whatever. <laughs> so, so he's right. He probably knows more than us. And that's why I said, you know the difference between knowledge and wisdom? You know? He said, no, no, no. I said, you could tell me. I can't memorize a simple number for the life of me, but you could tell me how many feet are in a mile. And some of you know it, but he rattles it off to me. I didn't fact check him. I stopped doing that. <laughs> So, so he says, okay, well, that's knowledge. And, and wisdom is using that knowledge for something that's good for other people. And, and he goes like this. He says, you mean kind of like how they put those signs on the highway that tell you how many miles there are to the next bathroom? <laughs> that's wisdom. They know how many feet are in a mile, and they're using it for other people's goods. We've been there, right? It's like, oh, come on. Whew, if it wasn't for that sign, I'd be pulling over right now. So, um, but that's wisdom. And I told him, you know, you, you have a lot of knowledge. And I, and I like that about you. Keep learning. Love learning. But, but mommy and daddy have wisdom. We've been around a while. We know how knowledge works. And so when we tell you to do something, there's an authority structure there that says you need to obey it and honor us, regardless if you understand. Because you have a lot more to learn yet. Okay? And so submitting to authority does not mean turning your brain off. It doesn't mean going, oh, whatever they say. You know, okay. Left, okay. It's like the GPS thing, right? I shouldn't bring that up. My wife likes to tease me about that. She thinks I'm in love with my GPS. And we're traveling today. So as soon as we're done here, I'm going to visit family in Michigan, so I'm going to have a really close relationship with my GPS and my other GPS. <laughs> Don't you think this way's better? But it says, no. Oh. <laughs> Don't go there. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right. Yes, thank you. All right, well, I got four more pages here to fix that. Um, so, so submitting to the governing authorities. Submitting to the governing authorities does not mean turning your brain off. It's more of a position of honor and respect and submission. All right? There's a sense in which because of your authority structure, I need, to, I, need to, I need to posture myself before you with honor and respect. Even if I really disagree with you at times, it's not my place. On this issue, on this decision, on this choice, it's not my place. And therefore, you're, you're the authority, and this is where God has called me to place myself according to 1 Peter 2 and Romans 13. Uh, thirdly, and this is really a blessing for us as Americans, submitting is not refusing to be an influence. We, we can influence the governing authorities. We can have a voice on the governing authorities. And us, in a democratic society, more than most places in history and on our planet, we can and should impact the authorities around us but when we do, we must not influence the governing authorities outside of the given parameters of respect, honor, and submission. 
There's a story in church history that I love. As the gospel is, is moving west, Paul has been, he started planting these churches, you know, and, and well, he kind of wanted to plant one in Rome, and it's uncertain whether or not he did or not. Most likely he did not. He actually wanted to go to Spain, and I don't think he made it that far. But he planted all these churches, right? And as the early church is moving, it's continuing to move west, and it's finding its way in these Germanic tribes and in, in areas of France and England, and they probably weren't called that at that time. But <clears throat> And then there's this group of people called the barbarians that come crashing down and just demolishing towns taking these Christian towns and enslaving the people and taking them back to their towns. And there's a historian that writes, because of the gentle, humble, and submissive character and posture of the believers of that day, many of these barbarian communities were converted to Christianity. In other words, they were having a profound influence on their authorities from the position of a slave in such a way that converted the, the towns. So there's a way to influence the governing authorities without stepping outside of the parameters that God has given us of honor, respect, and submission. Does that make sense? We're, we're, we're very quick. We, 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 are, we're, we tend to be a, a culture of rebellion, you know? That if, I don't, if I don't agree or don't, don't respect, then what do I do? I rebel. That, that's outside of the parameters that God gives us. Now, don't get me wrong. I'll just throw this out there. There probably is a place for that. But I think that place is far and few between, and we be, need to be careful and be, need to be absolutely positive that God's called you to that. And if you aren't, then you hold yourself to the parameters that God has set for us submitting ourselves to the governing authorities, for there is no authority that God has not instituted. Submission is not prioritizing the authority above the ultimate authority. Okay? Here's an interesting passage here in Acts chapter 5. Peter and the apostles are preaching the gospel all over the land at this time, in the early parts of, of, of Acts. And, and the... Um, the Jewish authority at the time aren't, aren't real happy with this, you know. And so they capture Peter and the apostles. And they say, guys, we really don't have a big issue with you guys. He said, you guys are kind of good teachers. I mean, fishermen became good teachers. I don't know, go figure. I don't know how that happened. But still, you're pretty good teachers. And it's pretty cool if you continue doing this community stuff. It's pretty cool if you keep gathering people together and, you know, all that kind of religious stuff. There's just one thing that we have a problem with. Can you please stop talking about Jesus? Just, just stop talking about Jesus. I'll read the passage here. It's in Acts chapter 5, verses 27 through 29. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to preach in this name, talking about Jesus. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Here's what's interesting. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Who? Who said that? Peter said that, right? Peter says, We must obey God rather than men. Who is it that wrote the letter that I read at the beginning? Be subject to every governing authority? 
That's Peter. Okay, now that's a, that's a kind of contradiction here. Or to make it, to make it nicer, it's, it's an exception. And here's where I want to draw a clear line here. Because I don't think Peter's talking out both sides of his mouth. I think he fully intends to say, be subject to the governing authorities. Period. But where's the exception? Where do I draw the line, Peter? At what time do I stop being subject to the governing authorities? What were the governing authorities asking Peter to do? Stop talking about Jesus. Who told Peter to talk about Jesus? The highest governing authority. Okay? So this is the only exception to the rule I could find. And this has implications that can trickle down into so many areas of life. Unless the governing authority is commanding you to do something that the highest governing authority has forbade you to do, or the governing authority is forbidding you from doing something that the highest governing authority has commanded you to do, you are obligated to be subject to the governing authorities. Ask yourself in the areas that you decide you want to break rules. Is this an area that God has clearly commanded me to, to break? I don't want to meddle. I'll meddle. I'll meddle. When I was 19, I, um, actually before I was 19, when I got my driver's license, oh, hey, you know where I'm going now. Um, when, when I got my driver's license, I thought it would be neat that every road that I continually drive on, at least once, I will double the speed limit. It'd just be awesome, just to, which was, we have a winding country road where our house is, and it's, the speed limit's 35. So that was the trickiest, because you had to hang, you had to hang this one turn and stop on it to the point where you're almost screeching, because you had just a little straightaway, just to just, I could just hit 70 before it dropped down and made a sharp turn. And then you pull back, and woo. So um, I thought that was kind of neat, and then I came across Romans 13, and I came across 1 Peter 2, and I was like, well, you know, it's, a, it's, the, it's the spirit of the law. It's, uh, you know, nobody follows that. And I kept rationalizing all around it, and at the, at the end of it, I was just kind of like, you know what? I have no biblical warrant. I have no biblical command that tells me that I'm obligated <laughs> to break that law. And therefore, I don't see any right for me to break that law, even if the governing authorities don't even enforce it. Even if the governing authorities make a joke out of the only laws they make, it's still the law of the land, and I'm obligated by the highest authority to follow the governing authorities unless the highest authority commands me to break that rule, and he has not. And so at the age of 19, I was like, done with that. And I've never went over the speed limit since nor lied. <laughs> but you see what I'm saying, though? The, 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 the effects of this teaching trickle down into so many areas of our lives. And I think we sometimes claim more freedom than we should. Lastly, being subject to the governing authorities does not mean being fearful. Sometimes we think that, well, if I'm going to posture myself in submission to and subject to the governing authorities, it means that I'm just going to be like, okay, whatever you say, you know, not in the face. Oh, wait, I'm supposed to do it like this, right? You want to hit a guy with glasses? Um, in, in, in Acts chapter 25, Paul is, um, has been 
run down by the, by the governing authorities. They capture him. They don't like how he's stirring up the communities. And um, we just were reading this as staff um, this, this last week. And, um, and they, and they want to they get him to stop stirring up the towns until they find out that Paul's a Roman citizen. By birth, he points out, I'm a Roman citizen. Back off. You know? <laughs> and there's an interesting phrase. In, Romans, in, in, in Acts 25, they're about to take, they're about to take um, Paul on this long boat journey to go have an audience before Caesar, which uh, whether or not he ever gets there, I'm not sure. But he begins that journey, and in the previous verse of Acts 24, the last verse of Acts 24, you read that we would have let Paul go. We, we would have let Paul go, but, but he appealed to Caesar. So, so why is Paul going on this journey? He's captive as a prisoner? He made the request. I appeal to Caesar. I am a Roman citizen. You are obligated to give me an audience with Caesar. What you have been treated is not just. I'm making my appeal to Caesar. Now ask yourself, Caesar had the power to do whatever he wanted with Paul. Was this an act of timid, fearful submission? Or was this a courageous act saying, come what may, he could have my head. I'm going to Caesar. So being subject to the governing authorities does not mean that we act, we position ourselves in a fearful way. This phrase that I like to discuss quite a bit is there's a phrase that says you are so heavenly minded that you are no earthly good. I've heard that a lot. You've heard that a lot. You may have even heard me say because I talk about it a lot. That phrase is totally not true. Totally not true. I know that when we say it, we're probably talking about people that, that, you know, they just sit there and read their Bibles, 20, like the monks that hide in, they hide in these monasteries and never really go into the community, which is bad, a bad generalization of monks, by the way. But anyway, um, the truth is, unless you're heavenly minded, you can never be ultimate earthly good. What is it that makes Paul be able to have that kind of courageous gesture? He sees the ultimate authority. He hears the ultimate promise. He knows the ultimate end. What if, how did Jesus put it? Do not fear those who can kill the body. Fear those who, after killing the body, fear the one who, after killing the body, can take the soul. Okay, Caesar can kill me, right? I know the ultimate authority. Unless my mind is so fixed on the heavenly things, unless I'm so convinced of the promises of God, unless I'm so wrapped up in the glory of eternal life, you'll never do some of those crazy things like make appeals to Caesar or take Bibles into Muslim territories. Go to Colombia, South America. Be a missionary in some of the tribal places of Africa that have no governing authority, and it really is an anarchy-type system of of control. Who would do that? Someone who's so heavenly-minded, they're ultimate earthly good. Does that make sense? That's how we posture ourselves before our governing authorities. So, Pastor Rich asked me to talk about Daniel, and I really haven't. So let's go to Daniel. Daniel's story In 605 B.C., Daniel was probably only a teenager. Nebuchadnezzar attacks Jerusalem and carries off all 
of the people that he saw as valuable. Daniel was one of these. He was probably only a teenager at the time. He actually lives throughout all of the kings of, of the Babylonian Empire. He died shortly after the Persian Empire took over. We read in Daniel 1, verse 3, The king commanded the chief eunuch to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So from this passage, we know that Daniel was seen to be attractive and intelligent. So he was taken and taught all the ways of the Babylonian Empire. Now, I got to pause there for a second, because I know when I read the story of Daniel, sometimes I just, they, they, they put so many things in one sentence. You ever notice that when you read like the, the Old Testament? You read a sentence and all of a sudden you're like 60 years later. And you're like, like life doesn't work that way. You know, a lot of things happened last year that are affecting me this year. So let me figure this out for a second. So Daniel was a teenager. Just let's put it in our context of peak in here. Let's, 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 let's pick our most hated na- nation. Let's say Canada. <laughs> oh, those Canadians. Um, <laughs> and so we're, we're here, and Canada storms down into the United States and, and totally takes our way of life. And, and they see you. I know that some of us are older, but picture yourself as a teenager. They see you and say, wow, this person's pretty sharp. Pretty good looking, too. And so we're going to take them, and I'm giving you permission to view yourself as good looking. So that's good, because you have to follow me in this, in this illustration. And so they take you back up to Toronto, and your parents, I don't know, they may, if they were good looking, but they probably weren't young enough, so they probably get, they stay behind if they're alive. Your way of life, gone. Your dreams, did you have dreams as a teenager, what you wanted to do, what you wanted to be? How did you want to shape your life? What kind of family you wanted to have? What kind of per- parent you wanted to be? What kind of career you wanted to go toward? Forget about that. You're in Toronto now. Not only are you serving in the governmental system of that nation, but that's the nation that destroyed your way of life, and now you are a servant to that nation. Sometimes when I read Daniel, I see that as a career change, a change of venue, a trip, a choice to live in a different city. Like, I was in D.C. and now I'm in Pekin. What a nice decision. No, it's not like that at all. He's actually serving for the good of that nation, the nation that destroyed his entire way of life. So that's what happened to Daniel. Can you even imagine what that life would have been like? It's not unlike what St. Patrick faced. St. Patrick, who wasn't Irish, he was, he was British, and he was kidnapped by Irish pirates and enslaved in Ireland, and when he finally escaped, uh, I can't remember how many years, some of you might know. No? Okay, just checking. <laughs> I know it was a while, a decade or so. When he finally escaped, um, he comes back to his family, and, um, and he decides after some time that he's going to go back to the captors and bring the gospel to them. Daniel tries to hold to his convictions and commitments to the God of Israel 
within the context of the idolatrous Babylonians, and this gets them in trouble at least a couple times. I'm taking for granted that you know a little bit about the story of Daniel. You know about the lion's den. They had to go in to, to hang out with lions. That would be scary. You know about his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and how they had to go into that furnace. So a couple of times when he held to his convictions, he, he got in trouble for that. He, he interpreted dreams, much like we heard about Joseph last week. And in, in so doing, this helped Daniel stay in good favor with Nebuchadnezzar and other kings Daniel outlived. Daniel was in service of the Babylonian kings for about 49 years. He perhaps sat, he perhaps sat under the leadership of, of maybe six different kings. There's a name of God that's used over and over and over in the book of Daniel, more clustered more in the first five chapters of Daniel than anywhere else in the Bible. And it's El Elyon. Some of you have done the studies of the names of God in the Hebrew text. El Elyon is most high. And I find that interesting as I, as I pair up this passage in 1 Peter 2 with Daniel. Because over and over in the book of Daniel, Daniel is reminding most high, most high, most high. Nebuchadnezzar, you're pretty high authority. Yahweh, most high. El Elyon is God most high. In fact, even at one point after a, a time of insanity that Nebuchadnezzar faces, um, and when he comes to his senses, he, he even finds himself praising El Elyon, the God most high, recognizing that he was not the God most high, but there was a higher God. I would look at the character of Daniel. Daniel was humble. We never see him promoting himself. In fact, every time that he is exalted, it's because somebody else lifts up his name. He was intelligent, not just smart, but could think on par with the wisest in the modern world that day. In Daniel 1, 17 through 21, we read Nebuchadnezzar listens to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. In case you don't know, that's the, names of, that's the Hebrew names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And as Nebuchadnezzar listens to him, it says that he found them ten times better than all the man- magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Very smart. He was a shameless God exalter. Think of this. Nebuchadnezzar just destroyed the nation that you're from. Your God is thought to be the God of that nation. You're brought into the conquering nation. Then when given the opportunity to interpret a dream, what does Daniel do? He says, I can't interpret it. None of your wise people can interpret it, but only my God, not your God, my God can interpret it. You hear how offensive that may have come across to Nebuchadnezzar? Where was your God? He couldn't stop me from destroying your nation. And now you're claiming that he's above my God. Okay. So he was a shameless God exalter. He was committed to his convictions. On the heels of being violently kidnapped and forced to serve the nation who destroyed his way of life, he is given one of the best diets available to royalty of that day. Daniel has not thrown the towel in on God. His reluctance to partake is not because he was disgusted by the food, but he did not want to break his commitment to God. Yes, the same God who allowed his home to be destroyed. Think about that. If your entire way of life, if you view yourself as a faithful person who's consistent in prayer, who's loving to his family, who's devoted to God, and this kind of disaster is struck on you, how much commitment do you want to have to a God that lets you suffer like that? 
And then they come in and say, all of the food of royalty is before you. Eat to your fill. Well, I know where my brain is located. I don't know if God's happy with this, but eh, what's he done for me? He did not want to break his convictions to God, even the God who at that time apparently had let him down. He was consistent in his conduct when they tried to accuse Daniel of wrongdoing in Daniel 6. They tried to set him up, some of the other officials. We read in 6 verse 4, The high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for, for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. If someone wants to set you up, could they do it? They couldn't do it to Daniel. He was a man of prayer. I do want to take a little sidestep on this before I conclude with the context of, of this submission. Daniel was a man of prayer, and he did not, didn't hide this in a private way. He was very public with his prayer. And, and I thought about that. I, you, you hear the phrase a lot, I'll, I'll pray for you, right? You hear somebody, they're pouring their heart out to you, and, you, and they say, I'll pray for you. It's an unfortunate phrase, I think. I mean, it's a nice gesture, but, but I, I, I don't want to project my shortcomings upon you, but I'll pray for you sometimes is left with, I'll pray for you. And then I forget. I try to pray as soon as I get a chance. But um, Jeremy and I have challenged each other in the last couple months now um, with this idea that unless there are circumstances that prevent us from being able to pray for one another, when we present situations to one another, pray for one another. And so I remember sharing with Jeremy the other day in his office, and I was like, well, that's that. And I went to walk, and he said, no, 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 let me pray for you. Let's do it now. Why not now? I remember when I was in Bible college, one of the first and the most bizarre things I noticed is I'm walking down the sidewalk, and there's these clusters of people. Just, they're like praying. Aren't you supposed to go in a closet or something? I mean, you're right out in the open. What are you guys doing? They just prayed for one another. Wouldn't it be neat to have a culture that just prayed for one another? You're sharing with each other in the foyer all the time. Don't say, I'll pray for you. Unless for some reason you have to go and you can't stay there, well, just take their hand and pray for them. Doesn't have to be this eloquent thing. You know, Lord, we beseech you, don't smite them. You know, um, it doesn't have to be. It, it, it can be a 20-second, oh, 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 you know, God, help my sister here. She's struggling with this. Just be with her in a way that she, you know, just something simple. But pray for them. Daniel was a man who publicly displayed his prayer, even at the expense of some of his comforts. So here's the last question I want to leave with you. Who? This is the hardest one. This is the most convicting one. This is the one that really stings me the most. Who are we to be subject to? In Daniel's case, it was Nebuchadnezzar. Let me unfold that just a little bit so you could feel the weight of this. Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem several times. The first attack was in 597 B.C., at that time, he made Jerusalem basically a subject to him. The kings of Jerusalem were allowed to remain and govern the city, but they really were below the, the ultimate rule of Nebuchadnezzar. The last three kings of Judah were exceedingly evil and unwise. The last one, Zedekiah, rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, allying with other nations. 
So Nebuchadnezzar went in, totally obliterated him this time in 605 B.C. How did he do this? He didn't want to waste his ammunition. He didn't want to put his soldiers at risk. He had an immensely large army. He surrounded the city. King Zedekiah locked the doors to protect themselves from this army. And so the army buckled down and attacked harder. Nope. They just sat and waited. Because after all, the farmlands weren't in that city. The farmlands are outside that city. And if you ever remember reading some of the most, more terrifying parts uh, in the Psalms, some of those things happen at this time. They end up by starving. They run out of food. They're afraid because the Babylonian army is out there. And even cannibalism began to happen in Jerusalem during this time, stealing people's children for food. This is the context in which Daniel was living. This is Nebuchadnezzar that he found himself subject to. And so at night, they open the doors, and they try to make a run for it, but the army is everywhere, and they can't get anywhere. They totally dis- demolish the town. They, they remove all the valuables as trophies from the temple. They burn it down. They capture King Zedekiah and his sons, and shackled the Babylonian generals. They make Zedekiah watch as they kill his sons. I don't know how they did it, but the fact that they make him watch, it makes me, tell, it makes me think that it probably wasn't a pleasant way. And as soon as they're done killing Zedekiah's sons, they gouge Zedekiah's eyes out, so that's the last thing he ever gets to see. That is the governing authority that Daniel is making him subject to. Can you imagine how hard it is? How hard it is for Daniel to view Nebuchadnezzar with a posture of honor and respect and submission. Destroyed everything in my life. And not even in a nice way. What about Peter and Paul's case? They're the ones who wrote this stuff. The Romans were known to intimidate with torture and violence. This is seen in Daniel's prophecy. Public torture and humiliation was the common practice where they stripped people naked, nailed them to beams of wood, trees if the beams were not plentiful, which indicates that this was done a lot. And so you grew up in that culture and saw human beings nailed to things. Pontius Pilate, who was known for his violence, even in the context of the Romans, who were known for their violence, the gospel writers speak of an event where he, is, where he so slaughtered the Jews in the temple that the blood of the Jews was mixing with the blood of the sacrifices on the altar. Stephen was stoned while the governing authorities turned their head. Paul made a legal appeal and ended up by being beheaded. Peter was captured and crucified, and tradition says that he didn't want to be crucified the way Jesus was, so they crucify him upside down. That... Get this, that is the governing authority that Peter's writing about. How hard is it to posture yourself before that governing authority with honor, respect, and submission? What about our case? I feel like a little baby when I do this. We can't pray in school. The Ten Commandments are in question. Someday religious organizations might lose tax-exempt status. How hard is it for me 
to view my governing authorities with respect, honor, and submission. Man, I got to punch myself in the face and say, grow up. Grow up. doesn't matter if they're good or bad authorities. God has put it on us that unless he releases us to disobey or rebel, because of the position they held, hold, I'm obligated to be subject to the governing authorities. This is very relevant in an election year. I hear a lot of people say things like, I didn't vote for him. Daniel didn't vote, didn't vote for Nebuchadnezzar. My goodness. We still have a wonderful system that we live in. Yeah, there's elements of it that are bad. And we have influence on it. Praise God, we have influence on it. When we decide to position ourselves in this kind of submission, when it's done in the right ways, with the right character, holding the right convictions, we communicate to the watching world, first and foremost, our allegiance to Christ. Make it known, like Jesus did. You'd have no authority over me unless my God gave it to you. And guess what? He did. But for his sake, I'll obey you. For his sake, I read in the news about religious organizations that are caught with all kinds of tax fraud type things. How does that witness for Christ? How does that witness for Christ? When we put ourselves subject to the governing authorities, we declare first and foremost our trust in God. Especially when the people can watch us and say, I know that they, aren't, they don't like these rulings. I know they don't like these principles. I know that they don't like these officials. Yet, how come they treat them with such respect and honor? They must be trusting something else. Yes, I'm trusting something else. The governing authority who told me to be subject to the governing authorities. Finally, we display our highest value, not of this world, appealing as appealing to everyone to look at with us. When we position ourselves with that kind of submission, the world has to ask the question, they must value something that's beyond this world because they're willing to be subject to this world. Because if they valued this world, they'd be kicking and screaming. So what are they valuing? Give a reason for the hope that lies within you. Value Jesus. And the gospel spreads. So, I don't think it was too much of a leap to go to 1 Peter 2 in speaking about Daniel. I don't think it's too much of a leap for us to see this as a commendable characteristic of Daniel, who managed to keep himself in an influential position in a horrible governing authority structure for 49 years. Can we follow in those steps for the sake of Jesus Christ? Let me pray. Jesus, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word. We thank you that at the end of all things, we can trust you, that we know that you've gone to prepare a place for us. And I don't delight in the place, but I delight in the purpose of the place, which is so that we can be with you. And so we thank you for that. And because of that, it gives me confidence and courage to be able to do things in this world, in this time, so brief as it is compared to eternity, that honor you and that can have an eternal effect. I pray that this will be a growing thing in each of our hearts, that you'd help us to apply it in the ways that we feel convicted with, and you'd help yourself to be honored in how we bring this before our communities. So to glorify yourself in this message, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.